live stream. And again, those of you watching at home, welcome. Great to have you with us. Genesis chapter 10 is where we're... No, Genesis 11. I just contradicted myself. You're like, ah, Brent's a liar. No, I made a mistake. Brent is just an idiot. I may, I may be an idiot, but I'm not a liar, all right? So we'll just agree on that, I think, here today. So Genesis chapter 11 and... Um, Get myself all sorted here. There we go. I think we got it. Let's do this. Yeah. So, good stuff here. Genesis 11. Yeah. And, and Genesis 10 and 11, just so you know, last time we were in, in Genesis, and it's been like, you know, a month or so since we were in Genesis. Yeah. I mean, going through our, our regular Christmas break and our other, every other Wednesday, it's been a little while now, but we're back at it. And in Genesis 10, we looked at that table of nations, right? These 70 nations that had all come from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? And so we see this breakdown of, of these nations, and we looked last time at kind of where these different people were. Shem were the, the Semit, kind of the, the father of the, the Semitic people, Ham, the father of the African nations, African people, Japheth, the father of the European people. And in Genesis 10 ended by saying, from these nations, look at the end of chapter 10, end of verse 32, and from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So understand something here, Genesis 10 and 11 do not flow chronologically. It doesn't come Genesis 10, we see all this, and now we see the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. No, this has happened already. Uh, Genesis 11 and 10 are not following chronologically. Chapter 11 begins now to unfold to us why these nations were divided on the earth, how that happened and why they were. Now, before we get into chapter 11 here, I think it's important that we kind of recognize that we're not talking about different races as we look at the nations and the table of nations in 10 and all that's going on here, the people gathering together in chapter 11. We're, we're dealing with different nations. Understand that the concept of race is not found in the Bible, and it's purely an evolutionist concept with no basis in either scripture or true science. In evolutionary terminology, a race is a subspecies in the process of evolving into a new species, but the Bible only speaks of kinds. Where mankind is concerned, it's one kind, but it's made up of different nations, tribes, tongues, peoples, and families, but those aren't races. And it's interesting that we live in such a divisive time where so much of the blame of division is put on racism, right? But I just got to say, there's one race. There's one race, my friends. And I'm not saying there isn't prejudice or bigotry or hatred out there, but let's not make it about racism. We have a sin issue and not a skin issue. If we could understand that we come from the same ancestors, as is clearly laid out for us here in Genesis, that we're all created in the image of God, then we would begin to see our commonality and, and function with a greater understanding toward one another. We don't have black versus white. We have brown. <laughs> some are light brown and some are dark brown, and that's a matter of melanin, all right? Simple as that. That's what gives you the color of your skin. It's not about differences of race, but difference of melanin. In fact, as you look at this chart here, everybody, I don't know if you can make that out here, Everybody has this kind of, you know, genes and such that, that 
creates this, this melanin. Now, Adam and Eve, for instance, because you think, how do we have all these different, you know, looking people if we all came from the same source, right? Well, we all came from Adam and Eve, but then again, after everything's destroyed, we all come from, uh, from Noah and his wife. Now, if Adam and Eve were to have, like, you know, the A, B combination right in the middle, they're a very kind of, you know, neutral kind of a brown, uh, a medium brown, which they could have in their offspring had anything that's kind of dark to light. And, and that's simply a matter of, of melanin. There's one color of skin that's seen in different shades, which is controlled by genes, which regulates the amount of melanin produced. So uh, I think it's interesting that we look through this because, and, and I don't know why I got into that when I was just kind of, you know, working through this. It just was in my mind, and that's a bit of a, a rabbit trail from what we're really getting into here, but it's kind of leading us back into what we looked at at the Table of Nations because I, I think there's just, it, it's so absurd what we see with so much emphasis on race, racism. It's almost like we make it that by talking about it all the time where if we could just understand there's one race out there. We're all the same. We're creating the image of God. It's a matter of, uh, of just melanin, but we're all brown. Some are light, some are dark brown. That's it, right? And so we're all just a part of the human race. Anyways, that's my little rant here that we're going to just leave alone right there. But so again now, this section now in chapter 11 is a bit of that explanation of the division that was referenced in Genesis 10. Even in, in Genesis 10, when we looked at, look at verse 25 there of Genesis 10. To Eber were born two sons, and many believe that Eber was kind of like the, you know, the father of the Hebrew, where we get the name Hebrew from. Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. In his days, the earth was divided. That's kind of what many believe is being referenced now in Genesis chapter 11. And, and there's a real cool pattern or literary structure that we see at the beginning of chapter 11. Again, it's so wonderful to see just the intricacies of the word of God, the beauty and the symmetry that we see in Genesis 11 that doesn't come about just by some kind of random writing. This is just, again, inspired of the Lord where, he, where people, again, when you begin to see patterns and, and, and chiastic structures, you begin to realize, I mean, there's something more than just a human author involved here. This is what we see in Genesis 11 in the first nine verses, this kind of pattern where it builds, and it builds all the way up to verse 5 where the Lord came down, and then it kind of repeats backwards where the whole earth had one language, they were there, each other. They said, come, let us make bricks. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. But then the Lord came down and reverses. They talk about the city and the tower which mankind had built. Come, let us mix it up. Mix up each other's language that they might scatter from there and take the language of the whole earth here. And so this interesting pattern, we're going to see that as we go through here in these first nine verses. We're going to look at a few different things here. We're going to see in verses 1 to 4, human arrogance. Human arrogance, verses 1 to 4. We're going to see in verses 5, heaven's awareness. Verses 6 to 9, heaven's action. And then heaven's agenda in the rest of the chapter. Human arrogance. We're going to see heaven's, um, heaven's, what did I say? Heaven's awareness. Thank you. Who's taking notes? Thank you. Heaven's awareness. Then heaven's action and heaven's agenda. All right. 
So let's look at that here in verse 1. Let's read a few verses here. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So, at this time, there's only one language. Everybody's speaking the same thing. It's very easy to communicate with one another. Now, we often look at primeval history as being very basic and, and unadvanced, right? We think of cavemen just walking around, basically grunting at one another, right? But I believe that these days in early history were very advanced, especially at the near this beginning time, and even though we're moving quite away from it, but the beginning of creation here. God didn't have to start with cavemen that evolved. He made two people that were, were very advanced. And, and we've made great strides because of accumulative knowledge. In other words, just because we've been on this planet for so long, there's been discoveries made that aid in the advancement now of many things to where we might think, oh, we're getting smarter, but that's just through accumulative knowledge over centuries here. But it's not so much that we're, you know, so superior to our ancestors. In fact, just think of Noah having to build this large boat that's going to sail through the waters carrying all these animals. I mean, I'm like, where do you start? Like, hello, you don't have this, the same kinds of tools that we have today. And yet here's Noah building this incredible ship that many people now, and, and you look at the, the kinds of ships that carry huge, you know, cargo designed very much like the ark, right? And so it's just incredible to see the advancement that people were working with back then. And it's the same with languages. Ancient languages were extremely complex with many different inflections that were being used. This has actually decreased quite a bit in the, in the way that languages are spoken today. In fact, you can make an argument that our speech has greatly digressed to more of a simpler form than what it once was, right? I mean, I think of, of people today where it's almost like we've reverted back to the, the caveman grunts where it once used to be, top of the morning to you, how are you today? And now it's just like, eh, uh, yeah. It's just kind of like, man, our, our language is kind of, I don't know if it's getting any better by any means, but nevertheless, there once existed one language. Now, we're not sure what that language was. We'd all like to say most likely English, right? Please let it be English. I, I can say with probably about 90% accuracy that it was in English back in that day. But it tells us in verse 2 that they, they went and they traveled now. And it says here they traveled from the east, but many translations say that they traveled eastward, that they made their, their progression towards the east. That's the idea as they migrated to the land of Shinar, which is in Babylon or modern-day Iraq. And that moving eastward was never a good thing. It, it represents biblically a moving away from God and his presence. See, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, cherubim guarded the entry at the east of the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, verse 24. When Lot left Abraham, he traveled eastward where he was met with disaster, right, in Sodom and Gomorrah, chapter 13 of, of Genesis. And then 
Abraham's sons by his concubine Keturah were sent away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Jacob fled his homeland to the land of the people of the east. Here in the tower story, the people's eastern migration depicts universal rebellion. In other words, this moving eastward is always this idea of moving away from the presence or the blessings of God. And, and we read there again in verse 3, that they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. So as the people moved now eastward, they settled in this land of Shinar and they, they began to make a dwelling place for themselves. Their purpose was to build a city and to do what? To make a name for themselves. We want to kind of be our own boss and we want to kind of receive our own glory here in a sense and this all seems to be led by a man named Nimrod who we were introduced to back in Genesis 10 there in verse 8 in fact just look over there with me here let's read a little bit about him chapter 10 verse 8 it says that Cush begot Nimrod and he began to be a mighty one on the earth he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Erek, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That is the principal city. Interestingly here, Nimrod. What does it say about him? Well, it says that... It says he was a mighty hunter. Now, interesting, his name means let us rebel. Nimrod's name means let us rebel. And that's exactly what Nimrod was all about. The beginning of his kingdom, it says, was Babel. But he also found in Nineveh, in Assyria. Two kingdoms, Assyria and Babylon, that figure prominently in Israel's history. Because it's the Assyrians that come in against Israel and the northern kingdoms, the ten tribes of Israel in the north, and, and lead them away into captivity. And then it's the Babylonians that come years later and lead the southern kingdom of Judah away into captivity in Babylon. All of which Nimrod was the, the founder of. And as I said, it's recorded that he was a mighty hunter. The implication is that he was a mighty hunter of souls, and his purpose was to thwart what God wanted to do. He lived in open rebellion, as his name depicted. Lived in open rebellion to the things of God. The Jewish Talmud said that Nimrod tried to wage a war against God. Now, we read of another coming, of, of another one that's coming to do the same thing, the Antichrist. And I believe Nimrod stands as a picture or type of the Antichrist. And speaking of the Antichrist, Babylon again comes into play during his reign and in what we read of in Revelation. And Babylon there stands as that which is in opposition to God. Its foundations are seen right here in Genesis 11. And it just continues on throughout history as Satan seeks to provide a counterfeit religion. He seeks to provide a place of of promise and hope and prosperity, and yet it stands as a complete, uh, as completely contrary to the very ways of God. And 
we know from Revelation that it will be brought down by God and it's going to leave many desolate and crushed. Understand something here. As much as people are conspiring to come together and say, we've got a better way, God's ways are always best. Following him obediently will always lead to blessing. Everything that stands in opposition or contrary to God will never satisfy. And we're going to see that very clearly here in Genesis 11, aren't we? So it seems quite evident that Nimrod, again his name meaning let us rebel, is the one that's leading this great rebellion here against God. Now what's wrong with this so far? What we've read so far, what's wrong about it? Why is this a rebellion? Isn't this just people looking to find a home for themselves? What's so wrong about that? Well, a couple times we've seen God instruct his people to multiply and fill the earth. In other words, he's calling them to move out, spread out, and populate the earth. Right? Genesis chapter 1, he said it to Adam and Eve. Verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then in Genesis 9-1, he said the same thing to Noah. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and do what? And fill the earth. In other words, move out. It's like when you've got your, you know, 25-year-old living at home, it's like, move out. Go fill the earth somewhere else, just not here, right? That's kind of what God's saying, like, move out here. Spread out, go fill the earth. Because, again, he wants to see the name of the Lord go out over all the earth. But these people are saying, no, 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 no. It's not about making a name for the Lord around the earth. We want to make a name for ourselves. We're going we're gonna to plant ourselves right here. And, and we're going to do what we want to do. And we're going to make a name for ourselves. And ultimately... They're looking to make their own religion. This is what's going on here. Not only making a home for themselves, not only making a name for themselves, they want to make a religion for themselves. It's interesting that when they, they made their bricks, in verse 3, that they used asphalt for mortar. Now, that was a waterproof material. It's the same word spoken of um, when you read about Moses as a baby getting placed in the basket and they covered it with this asphalt so that it could be floating down the Nile and not taking any water, right? This waterproof material. Now, why did they need to use this material for their city? Is it perhaps that they expected another flood? Is it perhaps that Nimrod starts to lead this rebellion by saying, listen, I don't know if we can trust God. Yes, we know God promises that he'll never flood the world again. We got a rainbow to kind of show that and remind us, but... Can we really trust God? If he did it before, won't he do it again? We need to protect ourselves. We need to do what we need to do. And perhaps Nimrod, and that's just conjecture, but perhaps Nimrod is kind of leading people away from trusting the Lord and depending on the Lord to depend on their own methods and means of safety, of of comfort. Nimrod led this rebellion and caused people to trust themselves over and above God. And Nimrod's ultimate desire, as will be with the Antichrist, is ultimately to be worshipped as God. It says in verse 4, They all said, 
Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now notice the similarities we see in these verses with what we read in Isaiah 14. Regarding and referencing the king of Babylon and more so of Satan. It says there, um, how you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, Satan, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down a shield to the lowest depths of the pit. This is what Satan would love to see reproduced in every person. This mentality that we don't need God. We can do it ourselves. That we don't need to follow his way. In fact, why should he get all the glory? Why don't you get some of that for yourselves? Why don't you seek to gain some credit? or praise for what you've done. Satan sought that for himself, and he's leading other people to follow in that, and that's what we're seeing here with these people at Babel. Led by Nimrod, who's seeking to bring in another form of religion that ex- it completely takes God out of it. People today can get so stuck in This mentality of doing things my way for my glory, for my comfort. Making a name for themselves today. People are looking for that fame and glory. You just have to go on Instagram for a little bit and see the thousands of people that are simply trying to market themselves. Trying to get some kind of fame or attention there. What is that? Listen, if we're not careful, it quickly just becomes self-worship. These people didn't want to go God's way and go and fill the earth like he had instructed them to do. They, wanted to be, they didn't want to be scattered and live in anonymity. No, they wanted to band together against God. Create their own form of religion. Make a name for themselves. Receive glory for themselves. Now, it's interesting. If you're, when we think about this tower that they were building, if you're like me and you think about this tower of Babel, that reaches in the heavens, you're, you're thinking oftentimes like Jack and the Beanstalk, this, this vine that just goes right up in the clouds, to disappear, you can't even see it any longer, and they're right up there, and, and you think of the Tower of Babel that way. At least that's what I've often done in my life. But we see that its, we see that it's top is in the heavens, but the idea here is more so that at the top of it, it was used for the worship of the heavens. To kind of stargaze, it's where many believe was the beginning of astrology or kind of where astrology stems from. The structure that was built here was most likely a ziggurat, which is a a picture here of one. And we see these same structures all around the world today. What does that remind you of? Reminds you of one of the Mayan temples. And we see these structures around the world today. Most people believe that this Tower of Babel was this ziggurat format here where staircases that would walk around going up to the top or even moving around the outside and and up top would be this shrine area this area of worship that they would seek to do so under the heavens 
And as they made their ascent into the heavens, the idea was, we're going to get close to God. We're going to get close to God. But this became more about astrology than it did the worship of Yahweh. Now, even in Israel's history, they struggled with these things. Though they weren't building things like this, we see as they moved into the land that what happened? The high places, the high places weren't removed. These places of pagan practices that oftentimes corrupted the people of Israel and and, and defiled them, they were not always removing them as they should. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 3, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. It became increasingly detestable to God. And so they're looking to reach up to the heavens and, and worship there. But again, it was this own form of worship. And anytime we get away from God's way of, of following him and worshiping him, we're, we're in a sense creating our own religion, or we're, we're creating a, a false god, a god that's kind of viewed in the way that we think he needs to be worshiped and followed. It's interesting that Eden was established to be a place of intimacy with God, walking with him. And interestingly, Eden in, in the book of Ezekiel is called the mountain of God. As humanity is kept from this mountain of God now because of sin, they seek to recreate another place of elevation to reach God. Or more so in attempts to perhaps elevate themselves. Sadly, so often people try to elevate their works or their goodness in attempts to appease God. People come with a form of religion thinking that it's through their own ability, their own works, their own righteousness that they're going to reach God or please God. And again, that becomes evident here at the Tower of Babel. But it'd be God who now at another mount, Mount Sinai, would institute the law that showed his standard of righteousness. And in so doing, he would also reveal, or the law at least would reveal, our inability to live up to or attain to his standard of righteousness. And and many people love to say, well, I'm just living by the Ten Commandments. That's my, you know, that's what I live by. I'm like, well, good luck, man. You must be pretty miserable because you're breaking those every day, right? That's no way to live. But it showed our inability to live up to those things. But God would then meet us at another mountain, Mount Moriah, Calvary, where he allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to come and be crucified on a cross. Jesus paid that penalty for our sin, and he gave us his righteousness, the very righteousness that we needed, that we couldn't attain to or live up to in ourselves. He gave us his righteousness. Psalm 24 Verse 3 to 4 says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or the mountain of the Lord? Or who may stand in this holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. You see, our clean hands and our pure heart do not come from our religious efforts. Trying to climb our way up to meet God based on what we can present to him. 
No, our clean hands and pure heart comes through our faith in the finished work of Jesus. He cleanses us and gives us His salvation. So thankful for that. And understand this progression we see through the Word of God because it's always about God looking to provide a way for people to come and commune with Him. Sin keeps getting in the way of that. But God keeps providing and establishing His way for us to come and meet Him and enjoy His presence. So, here's the people collectively working together to make a name for themselves and to openly now just defy God's commands. And it's funny because they want to reach up into the heavens, but look at what we read next here in verse 5 as we look at, at heaven's awareness now. But it says in verse 5, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now this is one of those kind of anthropomorphic statements where it's, it's kind of describing God in, in, in this kind of human means or human forms to just kind of relate to what's happening we know that God didn't have to come down from heaven to see what was going on. We know that's not the case. It's almost like this is a, a kind of sarcastic tone that God had to come down to really see what they were doing. Because they thought, right, they could reach into the heavens. But the God of heaven had to leave the heavens just to come close enough to really get an eye of what they're actually doing. Now we know again that God, you know, didn't have to come down and do it that way. But it simply reminds us of how much greater and higher God is from us. As Isaiah says in, in Isaiah 40 verse 22, that God is the one that sits above the circle of the earth. He, he's so much higher and greater than we can ever imagine. Yet, he is so close to see every activity of man. So it's just kind of like almost like the sarcastic tone of verse 5 where the people are going, oh man, we're going to reach out to the heavens and say, God has to go, you know what, you're not even close here. <laughs> I've got to step down from the heavens just to, just to kind of get closer to see what you're doing here. Now, God could have stopped this action of the people at any time, right? I mean, as, even just with that thought in their mind, let's do it. God could have stopped it right away, even before it began, but he, didn't, he knows the hearts of men, but he's patient and long-suffering. And he's giving people opportunity to repent. But as things continue to develop as they are here in this chapter, it's time for divine intervention. That's what we see happening. Psalm 2, I think, could be a real interesting parallel to this account where we read there in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing or anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. But notice this, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. I love that passage. It's just like the Lord looks down at all the affairs of men, all the things that people are plotting and planning, thinking, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to get away with that. And God's just laughing, going, really? You guys... Come on, you forget who I am here? You think this is going to be successful? You think this is going to work out for you? And it's just like God is laughing like, what is it going to take, people? Give your heads a shake. I'm God. I made you. I'm the one that's leading, guiding, and, 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 and in control of all things. God is going to show that very clearly here. 
Verse 6, we see heaven's action now. It says in verse 6, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. It can almost sound like God's a little bit threatened by the activities uh, of these people here at this time. Like he's going, oh man, these guys are going to cause some problems for me. I better, I better put an end to it. it th- listen, it sounds like that, but this is not God being threatened at all by what he's seeing. God is seeing the potential harm that man is going to bring upon themselves. Like I said, he knows man's heart. He knows the pride that can become so prominent in people to where it just blinds them from reality, blinds them from truth. And and when you have somebody that's kind of rallying the troops and speaking boldly of, you know, making you great, making a name for yourselves, people can quickly get pulled into the hype of that. And unifying over these things has never brought favorable results. It's for this reason that God is, you know, against globalism. Not because it's a bad idea, but because he doesn't trust the heart of man. Neither should we. The work of the United Nations may just be case in point for something like this here. But God knows that the people will live in a delusion that they were all that they needed to really be sufficient. We can pull together. We can work together. We can be successful together. We don't need God when we have one another. And the pride can just well up, which, again, never is going to end well. When you have a group of people like that, it is going to become very self-destructive. And this idea that they could form their own religion, they can bring security for themselves, we'll make a city, we'll make a fortress, we'll, we'll be secure, we'll be safe apart from God. This is exactly the kind of trap that the enemy loves to bring people into. Thinking, listen guys, you don't need God. You'll be fine on your own. You'll be self-sufficient. Everything's going to be okay. You'll be safe. You don't, you don't need God. And how Satan is so quick to lead people into this path of deception to make others think that they don't really need God. Well, God knows here that if the population was separated and that if they, sorry, if the people had just kind of stayed together as they are or wanting to do, then apostasy and rebellion could set in. But if they're separated, all these things now can be localized and, and minimized. So it doesn't become a widespread issue, you see. God's going, if they stay together, band together, this is going to become a real problem. But if they spread out, well, there might be a few factions here and there, but it's not going to corrupt the whole. God's idea here in spreading them out was so that one person, a guy like Nimrod, would not infect the whole population and run amok in, t- in tyranny. And we've seen that happen in history, haven't we? Something that God does not stand for. So God now steps in and he intervenes, causing great confusion that, that would have caused the people to finally go and spread out. Look at verse 7. He says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, 
that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. So when God says, come, let us go down, he's addressing the Trinity here. Just like we saw in Genesis 1.26 when he said, come, let us make man in our image. Let us, he's not, he's not speaking to angels or some heavenly council. He's speaking to the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are, are in such unity and, and working together here. Let us go down. And what we see here is this becomes a direct reversal of what was said in verse 4. When they said, come let us build ourselves a city. Now God's saying, oh, let us come down and reverse all of this. Let us stop this from happening. He overturns this by bringing confusion to their language. Suddenly people began to, to speak in different languages and nobody would be able to understand each other. I mean, you imagine what the scene that would be unfolding right there? Just think about that. Everybody, everybody's working together. Hey, can you go get me that sock? And all of a sudden they go to say something. Everybody's like, what'd you just say? I have no idea what you said. And they're going, what'd you just say? I can't understand you now. It's like when you're flipping through the channels on TV and all of a sudden you see this movie pop up. You're like, oh, I want to see that movie. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, it's in another language. You're like, ah, oh, no subtitles. And you're like, I'm not staying on that channel. I'm moving on, right? That's what would have happened. In this They're all like, I can't understand you. What? We can't operate like this. We can't function this way. People would begin to move on. And that was God's intent. People wouldn't be sticking around to work with people they didn't understand. So it confused their languages. Now, it's interesting. We have upwards of 7,000 languages in the world today. That's a lot. That's pretty incredible. People have wondered... How do we come up with all these languages? Where do they all come from? Genesis chapter 11 answers that question for us. It's right here. It's quite obvious. God confused the languages. And from there they spread out. And, and no doubt as people began to spread out around the, the world, perhaps with these families here in Genesis 10, as these families began to maybe migrate to different places, and as population began to grow, different, you know, dialects or, you know, different forms of languages began to kind of change perhaps too and and begin to to grow now it's interesting because the very name babel can mean gate of god gate of god and yet that was the intention with nimrod and the people here was like we want to access the heavens we want to come and just open up the doorway to the heavens and and worship there under the stars gate of god and yet when God comes in, in verse 9 here, he says, its name is going to be called Babel, which here in the Hebrew means confusion. And it'll certainly be that for those that think they can run opposite the ways of God. They might think they're truly opening up for themselves this doorway to the heavens or the doorway to this new spiritual realm that's going to be so enlightening for me. And yet, anything that goes contrary to God's word and God's way is only going to cause people to walk further into confusion and misery. It's not going to be pleasant for them. 
as God reversed the work of man here, he's also going to reverse the curse of man. Because it's when Jesus died and rose again that we see these results at Pentecost take place in Acts 2, verse 5 to 6. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So it doesn't end there. It tells us in Zephaniah 3, verse 9. For then I will restore to the people a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Revelation 21.10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And then verse 24, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut all at all by day. There shall be no more night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. You see, at Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out, there was a reversal of what took place here at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. That people now, through the power of the Spirit, were able to understand one another. And though the people were scattered across the earth, God one day here now is going to bring all nations together. It's when Jesus is going to be reigning in this world. And then there's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. And it is going to be a glorious time here. So God is at work in reversing all these things. He reversed this one language in Genesis 11. But he's going to re-reverse it. Bring it back to the way it should be here. I think that's so awesome. Now, what's interesting is, is we begin to turn right here now as we continue in chapter 11, verse 10 we begin to turn a bit from this section of primeval history that we've looked at where we've seen four major events because remember Genesis is divided up into, into two main sections, primeval history and patriarchal history. Primeval history going from chapters 1 to 10, 10 covering four major events, creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel here. And then the patriarchal history is going to look at four major people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and we begin to move into that now here in uh, the end of chapter 11, but then more so as we pick it up in chapter 12 next time, not going to do it tonight, but next time, where we really dive into now the patriarchal history. But this is kind of what we see at play here. God didn't allow the people to attempt to make their name great, because that comes from the Lord, doesn't it? That's the Lord that is ultimately going to raise up one or, you know, glory comes from the Lord, but ultimately it's for the Lord. But with this new man now, Abraham, that we're going to focus on, God said, I'm going to make your name great. Right there in Genesis 12, verse 3. Or sorry, verse 2. I'm going to make your name great. And not so much that it would be Abraham be made great, but it would be God that would be seen as great through Abraham. And that's why... He began to call Abraham and call this nation now. He's going to scatter the nations, but now what we're going to see is God gathering a people, a nation that he's going to work through to again use as that witness of sharing the glory of God throughout the world. Let's read verse, verses 10 to 32. We'll look at some of these names here. And then uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up, okay? But it says, this is the genealogy now of Shem. 
Shem was 100 years old. So again, that's one of the sons of Noah. And this is the line now that's going to bring this Hebrew nation through. And that's why we begin to kind of deal more closely with that, which is what the, the narrative of the Bible in the Old Testament is going to be tracking through this, this family, this line of Israel that's going to bring the Messiah through. And that's why God chose this nation, chose them to, to, to protect them, to um, be the ones to preserve these things of God and ultimately to bring the Messiah promised one into the world so the genealogy of shem shem is 100 years old we got our facet two years after the flood after we got our facet shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters our facet lived 35 years and begot salah after we got salah our facet lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters salah lived 30 years and begot eber after we got eber salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Reu lived 32 years and begot Serug. After he begot Serug, Reu lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot uh, Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abraham, or Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. Didn't that just bless you so much, reading that genealogy? All right, just, just soak in that for a minute, okay? I don't want to move too quickly through that because I know there's just a lot. Okay, now we'll move on. Um, so this is what's leading us to Abraham, right? Now it says, uh, as we focus on Abraham's father, and notice something there. What, are you noticing anything in that genealogy and kind of in the ages? People are starting to live less, right? They're not living as long. Started out kind of living like, you know, 400, 500 years. We see that with, you know, again, with with Noah and, and after the flood lived long. Now we're seeing this, and just in this genealogy, the ages are decreasing as things have changed, you know, in the earth and in the, the climate and everything after the flood. Things have changed now. And so these ages are decreasing. Verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah and his in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. Then Abram and Naor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Naor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of uh, Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Ishkah. But Sarah was barren. She had no child. And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, his son Abram's wife. And they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So here they are now. They're just a, a regular group of people. They're idol worshipers. They're living in, the, in, in Ur the Chaldeans, all right? Again, that's kind of like Babylon country here. And, and these people were idol worshipers, but then God comes and he calls Abraham. Now, we don't hear that calling, even though the calling has taken place. 
The calling came when he was in Ur the Chaldeans, but now Terah, the father, leads him out, and they camped there for a time in Haran, and they dwelt there. Even though they were called to go to Canaan, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bring you to a land. I'm going to bring you to this land that I'm going to give you, right? And so they're not there yet. Abraham's being patient with his father. His father ends up dying, and then we're going to see um, Abraham continuing on. But we'll get into more of that calling of God in the next chapter here, chapter 12. We'll get into that next time, and we'll pick it up in chapter 12 as we begin this kind of new section of Genesis' patriarchal history, and uh, we're going to see some fun and great stuff as we go through these next few chapters. So we'll pick it up chapter 12 in a, in a couple weeks here. Next Wednesday will be our life groups, and then the Wednesday after we'll be back here together. All right? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can just come together and worship you and, and just spend time in your word. And uh, here in Genesis and in chapter 11, we're, we're looking at some interesting things, God, that uh, were a big major part of history that we see the, the kinds of ramifications even today from that. And, and I pray, Lord, that we would be those that are just desiring to worship you in the way that you've called us to, and that we would honor you, that we're not looking to make a name for ourselves, but rather we're looking to live out the name of Jesus and to proclaim you in this world that we live, especially in these days where we see that time. It just seems to be so short before your return, God. And I pray that we would take every opportunity we have, Lord, to live out the name of Jesus and to make you known in this world. May we continue to die to self and live for your glory alone, Jesus. So lead us and strengthen us. Fill us with your spirit, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.